MSW Media. Joe Biden won the election and he'll be the next president of the United States. But Trump won't go quietly and he's doing everything possible to hold on to power. How can we possibly repair the damage he's doing to our country? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of The Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I bring in Patty, I want to thank our patrons who brought us this episode. With special thanks, Andrew Donnelly, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Steve Hungsberg, Ari Lamstein, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. I have to say, this has been an episode It's taken us some time to put together, and there's really so much to cover. We are are living through an extraordinary time, and I have to say that when I imagined what it would be like for Donald Trump to be defeated in an election, I hoped it wouldn't look like this, where he's doing everything possible on the way out to damage our country— And the Republican Party, or at least the vast majority of it, seems to be going along for the ride. No doubt about it. I was, uh, you know, I had hopes that it would be a resounding victory, which ultimately it has been. The numbers are bearing out. And if we go by the logic that Trump used in 2016, this was a landslide. This was a mandate. And not only are Republicans uh, going along with him for the most part, um, you know, his his fans, his supporters are – you know, really starting to be, uh, how do I even put it? Because I have neighbors who are rabid about the fact that he won and it's been stolen. It's not a legitimate election. It's, it's awful. It is awful, Patty. And that is really what I wanted to make a focus of our, our, our podcast today. You know, for some time, I've had a lot of you reaching out to me about the election uh, lawsuits. And I will just tell you, it's been apparent to me for weeks. And if you've you know, watch my Twitter feed or read that you've, you've seen my view on it. You know, there was no way that any lawsuit or any shenanigans was going to change the result of this election. So it's sort of a non-story. I mean, I would have been happy to explain it further, but what I really think the, the real story here is the real concern for our country. What's going to last for the long term, is that Trump is convinced almost 40% of our country over 30% that this election was illegitimate, that Joe Biden won this election via fraud. And this the conspiracy theories are growing so out of control that Fox News is now under attack by the Republicans who are chanting many of the Trump's base are chanting, you know, that they hate Fox News and attacking Fox News because Fox News is calling Biden the, the president elect and is 
you know, noting that there's no evidence when people like Tucker Carlson or the Washington Examiner, these sort of right wing uh, uh, mouthpieces are asking for evidence. They're being attacked uh, by Trump's base. And and I don't think, Patty, that we that we can as a country just write off the 35 percent of the of America that has been deceived by him. And I will tell you, my relative, some of my relatives are among them. So I, I, I just can't write these people off. We've got to figure out a way to bring this country together somehow. I, I struggle with this because, you know, there was a period of time after the numbers are coming in and, and after the victory dances of, of that Saturday, right? All of a sudden you had, you know, whether it was a piece in the LA times or conversations on various shows and, and tweets about how, you know, now, you know, Democrats have to find a way to work with Republicans. And we didn't have that a sort of sense or energy when Trump won in 2016. It was a lot of suck it up buttercup or, uh, you know, what are you, snowflake, all kinds of really derogatory language. And now it's just sort of interesting, odd and uncomfortable that we have to be like, okay, now how, how do we work with these folks? I, I don't know, Renato. I really have no answers to that. So I'm curious as to what our guest is going to say. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting point, Patty. And I will just say, I think that there's an important distinction to be made here. I agree with you that Republicans basically did whatever they could to jam through as much as possible during the last four years to, you know, with the power that they had and showed no accommodation to Democrats throughout that or very little. And in addition to that, they were complicit and at times were, you know, worked alongside Trump in doing some very heinous things. So I know our listeners are not in um, or the majority of our listeners are not in a in a in a headspace where they're like, yes, I want to work with Republicans. And just to be clear, I know that that is um, President-elect Biden's desire. And I hope he achieves that, too, you know, because it's going to be a necessity in the Senate. Okay, there's going to be, you know, even if Republicans don't control the Senate, which appears likely, they're certainly going to have more than enough votes to defeat a filibuster. Um, that, you know, what, putting that to the side, I think my concern is not whether people in Washington can work together to pass bills or get appointments through. My concern is, as a country, what do we do about the fact that a huge percentage of our population has been deceived? What do we do about the fact that a huge that one of our two political parties is so off the rails right now that these elected officials are kowtowing to conspiracy theorists and lunatics. I don't know what to do about that, but to, to me, it's a national problem. And while, yeah, I agree that I'm not saying that the that, that Democrats should be, um, uh, you know, uh, waving a white flag of surrender to Republicans, but I'm not saying that in, in Washington in terms of politics, but I'm saying, what do we do as a country how do we repair this damage? And I think that's that's a different question. It is, and I, as you alluded to, uh, the folks who were responding to the you know the tone of the conversation today, what our our plans are, you know, there's a lot of pain there too. There's a lot of anger, and I think the one that jumps out at me is, you know, how do we help those who have lost someone to COVID nineteen? How do we make them whole again? And we know that there is no way to make those families whole. And, and I've gone over this with, you know, there, and that on top of everything else, this mania that Trump, you know, won, you know, that Biden tried stealing the election, you know, that 
and on top of that, people who don't believe, I mean, full-throated denial of COVID-19, the dangers, the ca- catastrophic numbers. Over a quarter million people have died now. Um, is, just, is is beyond comprehension, really. Uh, there are days when I wake, wake up and I'm like, is this, re- is this still happening? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have relatives who are doctors who I get updates from about what they're going through because they're on the front lines. And I mean, you know, the, the last I heard for, you know, from this, you know, just a day ago was they were putting adult patients on the pediatric floor. The ORs and recovery rooms are closed so they can use them as patient rooms. They've just they've run out of space in the hospitals and, you know, they're all short staffed because so many of them have caught, have tested positive themselves or so the frontline uh, medical folks. So, look, our country is in a bad spot separate and apart from this problem. And, you know, you, one thing that you respond, you, you brought up, Patty, that I think is an important point that I wanted to address is there was some pointed criticism by one of our listeners that I want to address regarding bringing on a, a guest who's a, who's a Republican. And I thought it was something worth addressing because, you know, she, she made the point, and I think it's a fair point, that well, why are you giving a platform platform to a Republican who has, you know, advanced ideas that are dangerous or been in in league with those who have? And I think there's there's some, it's it's a fair point to make. I will just say that I deliberately sought out um, Republic. Uh, uh, I wanted to have a Republican as our guest um, this episode, and I did it for a reason, which is that. There is something disturbing happening in this country, and I think that we have to find a way to 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 do something about this problem. And I, I don't even fully understand it. And it is my hope that speaking to a Republican who saw firsthand the 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 problems in the Trump administration and came out to support Joe Biden is is the sort of person that might help us understand what we can do to at least make this country less screwed up than it is right now. Well, and I would say this then, uh, based on, on, on what you just said, because obviously I don't want to go into this, uh, because I'm with a lot of our, our fans and listeners who would like me to come out of this, you know, uh, having dropped the hammer on this guy. And then that's not our intent because we do want to have a conversation about how we move forward. But to your point that this is, that something is happening, I would say that this has been here, right? This uh, attitude, the um, complete dismissal by many conservatives of whether it's talking about police violence, uh, when we're talking about racism, when we're talking about science and facts, this is it's not something that's happening now. It's been there, and many conservatives had have really uh, manipulated. When you say that people have been deceived, you have to, in part, want to be deceived or already been vulnerable and pliable, right? And they and they have been manipulated by a lot of people, whether it's through the, the 50 years of Fox News and Roger Ailes and everything that's been done to control messaging. Um, it, it's been there. I don't know that uh, much, much of what separated us, you know, at the beginning of this country into the Civil War, that hasn't ever gone away. It's when the when there are those who are in power who have the ability to 
really align at the right moment. And they they basically are the dog that caught the car, right? They got Donald Trump, who really tapped into that mentality and brought it to the surface. And now a lot of Republicans, like our guests, are like, oh, dear, what have we done? Mm-hmm. And I'm glad, I'm glad they want to make things right, but I don't know that we could be made whole, to your question. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know either, Patty. Yeah. And people <laughs> ask me all the time, you know, how do we solve this problem where we've got two different universes, essentially, where you have people getting their facts from different locations? I, I don't have the answer either. I mean, I don't have an answer for the fact that there's some people who read the Daily Caller and listen to the Rush Limbaugh show and, um, you know, watch Newsmax and and so forth. And they live in a different world than you or I who are reading Reuters or the AP or whatever. Yeah. I, or whatever. The Chicago uh, Sun-Times. I, I don't. I don't know how to square that. These are problems that are beyond my ability to solve. People ask me these questions and it's like, look, I'm a, I'm a lawyer, not a magician. Um, but I think one thing I, I've tried to do in this, in this uh, podcast is not have this be a cheer section where I just tell people what they want to hear. And I know that some people are like, well, why give anyone a platform who disagrees with you? Look, I'm not uh, I'm not meet the press here. OK, so I'm not I'm not Chuck Todd uh, with the millions of viewers giving somebody a huge platform. What I am is somebody who, you know, in this discussion space with so many of you that are looking for intelligent discussion, I'm lo- I, I want you to maybe learn along with me. What 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 is the perspective of these folks? I mean, we had Miles Taylor on before the election. I have to say, Patty, that was one of the more interesting conversations we've had. Because it helped me at least understand the mentality of people who are working for this guy. Because I, I to be candid, I, I can't understand why somebody would be willing to work for Donald Trump. And I don't agree with Miles Taylor. I would never be Miles Taylor. But it was interesting to hear his perspective. I, I, you know, that's that's sort of what I'm hoping to learn from this. I agree. I, I know that the people are cynical. And I, 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 I tend to be, uh, you know, not just even glass half full, but I'm kind of a, oh, look, there's a glass of water. So I'm grateful to have our guests. Well, that, I, I am too. It'll be an interesting conversation one way or the other. And let me tell you a little <laughs> exactly. bit about, I'll, let me tell everybody a little bit about him uh, because, um, you know, he's somebody who's not a household name, but he was an important um, official in the Trump administration. Uh, John Mitnick uh, was general counsel for the United States Department of Homeland Security in the Trump administration. And just to be clear, before that, he had had a long uh, career in the Republican Party. He had run for the House of Representatives. He had run, actually, for the state Senate in Georgia. Before that, he he served uh, in the George W. Bush administration uh, as deputy, uh, deputy counsel of the Homeland Security Council and then as associate counsel to the president. Um, it should be noted um, that uh, he was fired by Donald Trump Uh, And that came after reports that he uh, pushed back against Trump when Trump wanted to dump and release uh, undocumented immigrants into sanctuary cities as a political retribution. Uh, Reportedly, he told the White House that that move was unlikely to be legal and pushed back against that, and he was fired shortly thereafter. Uh, he prominently, uh, along with some others like Miles Taylor, who we spoke about, publicly endorsed Joe Biden and supported him uh, during the election. Now, I will say that since uh, Mr. Mitnick is a lawyer, 
I can't ask him the specifics of what happened uh, during his time at the Department of Homeland Security for obvious, you know, confidentiality reasons. Uh, I'm not going to ask him to break the privilege, but I think that he can talk to us about his perspective as somebody who's a real uh, Republican who served uh, at a very high level in the Trump administration and has tried to, you know, forge a different path uh, against most of the people in his own party. So now let's bring in John Mitnick. Thank you for joining us, John. I really appreciate you coming on. My pleasure, Renato. Thanks for having me. I have to say, John, I was hoping that after this election, it would be a time when uh, we could come together as a country. We've done. We usually do that uh, after elections. There's usually uh, a speech. Uh, by the uh, you know president-elect to bring people together, and the outgoing administration uh, will uh, cooperate in that effort. And there's various um, ways in which we show in America that we have a peaceful transition of power, and that has not happened. And it's it's alarming to me. It's concerning to me. What's your reaction to what you've been seeing? Well, I think the fact that the president has not conceded and is not facilitating a peaceful and orderly transfer of power to the new Biden-Harris administration is unconscionable. And I wish I could say that it's surprising, but it isn't. And uh, perhaps the, the most surprising aspect of the current situation is the fact that we don't have more prominent Republicans, especially elected officials in Congress, speaking up and uh, encouraging the president to do the right thing. And, and perhaps even more importantly, uh, encouraging the administrator of general services, Emily Murphy, uh, to do her job and to make the ascertainment uh, that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are the president-elect and vice president-elect, respectively, that, they, that, it, that it is apparent that they are in order to begin the transition. The fact that she has not done that is also unconscionable. And I'm hopeful that she will, but so far it hasn't happened. Yeah, I think you raise a couple of important points. I mean, one thing that would be helpful, I think, for all of us, I mean, our, our listeners want to know as well, I think we're, many of us are, are sitting here at home who not having trouble understanding why it is that Republicans, for example, in Congress or Republican governors, more of them haven't come forward and acknowledged that uh, Joe Biden is the president-elect and uh, have pushed uh, Trump to uh, to concede or and to at least uh, permit an orderly transition of power. Um, can you help us understand, given your experience, your vantage point, what is going on, what what their mentality may be? I know that's the question on people's minds, and I wish I had a great answer to that question. I just don't. I, I think there is some degree of fear of the president's uh, platform, the fact that he has a tremendous following on Twitter and elsewhere, and he can be vindictive, as can be the people around him, and he is still the president of the United States, and I think... Uh, unfortunately, there are elected officials who are reluctant to speak up because they fear his wrath and they fear his influence with their electorate. Uh, that's the only explanation I can think of. It, clearly, 
and, and, I, and I hear this as everyone else does, it, it, it appears that many, if not most, Republican elected officials will privately acknowledge that Joe Biden is the president-elect and that they wish President Trump would actually concede and, and enable the beginning of a robust and, and peaceful transfer of power and a transition. But they, very few of them have spoken up. That said, over the last several days, there have been some encouraging signs. More have spoken up. Uh, obviously, Senator Romney has been has spoken up, but others have as well. Uh, Liz Cheney is clearly moving in that direction uh, based on a statement that she issued within the last couple of days. So there is hope that more will come forward, but it is very disappointing to me and to many others in the Republican Party that, that more Republican leaders, especially elected officials, have not come forward. I should also give a shout out to John Bolton. He's been He's been very vocal uh, in in support of the president doing the right thing and acknowledging the results of the election and recognizing that Joe Biden is the is is the winner. Yeah, it's interesting though that, of course, it's we're 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 both of us I think are searching for names, right, to try to find the people who are doing that. It's been much easier to to see the alt, you know, to it will be much much longer list on the other side. I. I wonder, you know, I spoke this past week, John, to a Democratic member of Congress who told me that all of the Republican members he's spoken to had said that they believed that Trump was going to run for president in 2024, and they thought that he had the nomination sewn up. And I have to say that was disturbing to me as somebody who believes that Trump has hurt our country in a very profound way, because I had hoped that a defeat in this election would sort of exit him from the, the national stage, that we would not have to be waiting and, and listening for what Trump was going to say next or tweet next, that his hold on the Republican Party would loosen, that, that the Republican Party could move in a new direction. Do, you know, do, do we need to, to be concerned or realize that per, perhaps the, the Republican Party will be the party of Trump for another four years at least? I certainly hope not. And you and I are completely on the same page, even though I, I believe that we're in different parties. Uh, but you and I are totally on the same page with regard to a Trump candidacy in the 2024 presidential election. The, the thing is that Donald Trump acts in Donald Trump's best interest. That's, that, that is what motivates him. And if he views it as being in his best interest, either for his business interests or his personal aggrandizement to, to run for president in 2024, or at least make noises that he's going to do so, uh, then he will. But a lot can happen in the next several years. As we've seen, a lot has happened in the last several years. So I, I am still very hopeful and indeed confident that even if he does attempt to run in 2024, that in fact, he will not have the nomination sewn up and that uh, cooler heads uh, will prevail, and so will rationality, and the Republican Party will go in a different direction. Certainly, I and and others are going to be working for that. I, I have not completely given up on my party. I'm a lifelong Republican. I'm still a conservative, despite the fact that I endorsed Joe Biden in the recent election. Uh, my policy positions and my personal identity as a Republican and as a conservative, have not changed one bit. 
the problem is that uh, this election, to me, was never about policy. It was not just some sort of objective comparison of two competing policy platforms. It was something much more fundamental. Uh, and to me, four more years of Donald Trump as president uh, posed an existential threat to the continued existence of our republic as we know it. And that transcends a, a policy debate, which is what we've normally seen in presidential elections and required me to do something that I've never done before in my, in my life, which is vote for a Democrat for president. Uh, you know, Pat, Patty, I think we have a question from our listeners that reflects, I think, what is on a lot of people's minds right now. Well, and I, and I think you actually just uh, referred to, you know, that this is more about the person, right? This is much more rather than the policy conversation we should have. You know, a lot of folks are, are concerned. One that, I mean, this a lot of what he's accomplished, whether it's in the judiciary or, you know, shrinking in the federal government is the goal of a lot of Republicans. And they kind of achieved that. But the the dysfunction, the 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 what's really uh, painful is the way Americans, I think, are interacting with with each other, and and also they want to know how can we restore the nation's faith in the integrity of our institutions when so much has been done to damage them. How do we come back from that? That is such an important question, and clearly, whoever asked that question is is keying in on an important aspect of the last several years. There has been significant damage done to our institutions. And one of my uh, favorite examples is my former agency, the Department of Homeland Security, which has been thoroughly politicized in this administration. And we're talking about an agency that includes over 240,000 dedicated patriots among its personnel and critical components such as the United States Coast Guard and, and TSA and Secret Service and the three immigration components um, and others. And it is a law enforcement and security agency primarily, but it's been thoroughly politicized in this administration. And as a result, morale has declined at the agency and also relationships with state and local governments have been compromised, which are critical to the success of, of DHS. And the, the faith of the American public in the agency, I think, has been diminished somewhat. That said, I think that the situation is, is very salvageable at this point. And how do we do it? First of all, uh, and, and I, I'm not here to speak for the incoming Biden-Harris administration. I, I have no relationship with the transition or um, or with the campaign, but I, I believe that they will take seriously the need to restore the reputation uh, and the morale at agencies such as DHS. And that begins with appointing senior leaders at these agencies who, have, who don't have a uh, decidedly partisan background and who will, who will operate these agencies with respect for the rule of law and with respect for process and, and also uh, in a, in a nonpartisan or at least bipartisan manner as befits an agency whose primary role is in the security and law enforcement realm. And, and also uh, to, to be very vocal because words matter and to be very vocal with the public and within these agencies that have been compromised 
about the need to return to uh, respect for the rule of law and, and process and, and the fact that, uh, that things are going to be different now. And I, I think that will happen. And, but we have to get from here to January 20th to begin that process. But it is, it is eminently doable in, in my view. And I think that whatever attrition that you might have seen among our dedicated public servants at institutions that have been politicized, such as DHS and DOJ to some extent, uh, that, that that attrition, I think, has, has been staunched, if you will, by the fact that we have a, a Biden-Harris victory. So people, I think, will hang on now and continue to do their jobs in accordance with their oaths of office between now and January 20th and not give up. And then I think the process of healing and the process of restoring reputations of our institutions can begin. You know, one thing I'm I, I want to give you a chance to to speak to because you're you're gonna there's a lot of listeners to my podcast who are gonna disagree with many of your policy positions. But I want to give you a chance to speak to them, John, in a way, because look, I will tell you that, you know, I had a listener who's very critical of of my decision to have you on the podcast. You're not the first person who I've who who I've had in my podcast who I've gotten some criticism for. I you know, like you want to restore faith in our institutions by having nonpartisan decision making for things like in my in what an, uh, an agency that's that's close to my uh, heart, the Department of Justice. I think it's very important. I wrote a column recently about the importance of making sure that prosecutorial decisions at the Justice Department not only are not politicized, but but are as free as possible from any appearance of politicization, given what has happened over the last four years. But a lot of my listeners were are I I have been watching Republicans during the Trump administration um, exercise power in a maximal way possible. In other words, not reaching across the aisle, not a lot of effort to compromise with Democrats. There's a lot of you know they're getting dunked on you know in social media. People who want to own the libs and so forth. How 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 what would be your message? To, to people who supported Joe Biden, progressives who supported Joe Biden, who say now it's our turn to get things done that 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 push our agenda forward and forget the Republicans because they didn't they they just helped Trump they helped his agenda. Well, my my main response to that sort of argument would be two wrongs don't make a right, and someone has to act in good faith and with goodwill here and and take the first step. And I think that that's what the Biden administration will do. But you, you raised a number of points. I did happen to notice, uh, because you, you tweeted yesterday to promote this particular podcast, I did notice the reaction by one person, and I don't think it really had any traction. But it, it was an interesting thing, because uh, this person pointed out, for example, that I had been the general counsel at the Heritage Foundation for about four years before I joined the Trump administration, which of course is correct. But uh, I make no bones about being a conservative. And it's it's because I believe that conservative policies are best for the country. And I those are those are sincerely held views on my part. Uh, and it's not about owning the libs. It's, it's actually my view of the best public policy that benefits the American people and the country to the greatest extent. And I'm entitled to those views. And that said, um, this person also said something about the, the Koch network. I, I have no relationship with 
the Koch organizations um, or the Koch brothers, and I don't know where that came from. And Heritage is independent of Koch as well. And my job at Heritage as general counsel was, was mainly to ensure that the Heritage Foundation complied with applicable law as, as a 501c3 tax-exempt organization, and also that its affiliate Heritage Action for America, which is a 501c4 tax-exempt organization, did the same. And I'm sure everybody would be in favor of, of every tax-exempt organization following the law, whether they're conservative or moderate or, or, or left of center. That said, um, I, I have always, throughout my life, particularly in, in my public life, and I've run, I've run for office twice, as I, as I believe you did, Renato, uh, in 2018, I think you ran for Attorney General of Illinois. Um, I ran for Congress in 1996, and in fact, I was the Republican nominee for Congress in the 4th District of Georgia, having won the, the primary and lost in the general election, which turned out to be rather unwinnable because the district was about, turned out to be about 70% um, Democratic, and it was a brand new district that had just been redrawn, but I still got over 42% of the vote. And um, I think I've been pretty consistent throughout my career, whether in electoral politics or as an official in the George W. Bush administration for over six years, including over three years in the White House Counsel's Office, and during my 19-month tenure as general counsel of the Department of Homeland Security in the Trump administration, that I am devoted to the rule of law. I believe all conservatives uh, should be, and, and the vast majority are, devoted to the rule of law. I'm devoted to a uh, calm, rational, objective, fact-based political dialogue and political discourse in this country. And I think that we should reach across the aisle and we should work as much as possible with people who do not agree with us. But in any case, if we don't agree, we don't violate the rule of law. That should be a cardinal principle that everyone on, on both sides or all sides adheres to. And it's certainly my principle and it's the way that I conducted myself when in government, including my most recent stint at DHS. So uh, my answer to the, the question is that I think we can and should work together. And I think we should exercise good faith and goodwill toward each other. And we should have honest, rational, calm discussions about public policy issues and to the extent possible work together for the benefit of the American people. Yeah, I, I will tell you, I, I also want to have uh, the, the rational discussion about policy differences. And I, ha I, I one of the things that concerns me the most about our nation and where it is right now, and, and really the reason, John, that I thought it was so important for me to have someone who came to this question with a different perspective, is that there there has been uh, such disinformation and, and uh, the transformation really of politics in, the, into uh, almost an identity uh, uh, versus a set of policy preferences. In other words, you know, I've had uh, conservative friends for many years and we had uh, vigorous debates about policy or the law or something, things of that nature. Uh, but but lately there's been this identity of if the if the the liberals are against it then I'm for it or this sort of thing and lately of course it's become more and more disinformation and I think the latest 
stuff that we're seeing regarding the election that Trump has been pushing and and even Fox News uh, has abandoned. But it's and the Washington Examiner to their credit, D.C. Examiner to their credit. But other uh, 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 groups on the right, the Newsmax and so forth, have been pushing, um, you know, that I think it 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 makes it so difficult to have that sort of fact based conversation, because I, I will say that when I speak to folks who are heavily influenced by by that, it, it's in, impossible for us to have a conversation because we're working off of a separate set of facts. Yeah, I, I think you put your finger on one of the main problems right now, which is we have people existing in information bubbles, for lack of a better term, and who are receiving information and so-called facts uh, that are distorted, uh, but they're not hearing counter-arguments or contrary uh, facts or views. And, And that's a difficult issue to address. I, I really acknowledge that it's a problem, and it, it is it is becoming somewhat tribal, frankly. It, that one's one's adherence to a group is, is dictating one's beliefs, as opposed to the other way around, <laughs> and and those beliefs can be ill-informed. So the, the, it's a difficult problem, and the the only thing. Uh, the only solution, I think, is that we continue to be vocal participants, all of us, uh, particularly people who, who know the facts and are objective and rational, and that we participate actively in the marketplace of ideas. And slowly over time, I have faith that the vast majority of the American people, regardless of their political adherence, will come around and, and will accept the truth, because I think most people are seekers of the truth at the end of the day, and they might be getting bad information right now, and that could be distorting their views. But I think that people on, and this goes for the for the left as well as the right, I, I think people need to focus on fact, because that, that's really, at the end of the day, our, our common reference point. Uh, if, we, if we go in the subjective direction, there, there's no limit to that, and you can disagree forever. And, but... But objective fact ultimately is is what is 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 a point of unity. It's what could could bind us and could, could could get us together and solve this problem, and also allow us to work together in a bipartisan fashion. So I think it's important for people uh, like like us and and others who have that approach to, to be as vocal as possible in social media and elsewhere. And I praise you for doing this podcast because I think it's great, and I and I appreciate your willingness to to reach out. To someone like uh, someone with my political background to have this discussion. Yeah, I will. I will say, you know, I, I, um, I think this problem is one that, in part, is due to technology. Uh, there was a time when we had just three, at least in my house, we we didn't have cable. We three or four TV networks to choose from, and one or two newspapers. And, you know, so necessarily all everybody was getting their news from the same sources. Um, And I will say as somebody who's a fairly recent participant in social media, uh, up until early 2017, I was a pretty anonymous lawyer. Um, But 
Um, you know, one thing I have noticed in my time in social media is that telling people what they want to hear gets you many more likes and retweets. Uh, I am often a cold, wet blanket uh, on uh, people on my side of the aisle when, you know, there'll be people saying that, uh, you know, Trump's guilty of homicide for COVID or some some such. Some such. I'm the sort of this person who's like, actually, no, you know, it's not that's not the case or, you know, uh, th- this isn't bribery or, you know, whatever it may be. And it, it's that stuff doesn't get the retweets and the likes and 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 the amplification. And I do think I think it's a I think this is a complicated problem that I don't know the answer to. And that's why I think I, I do know that one of the ways forward is to at least discuss it with people who may have a different perspective than me. And I know, I know, Patty, we had a question from our listeners about this as well that I wanted to bring them in. Absolutely. I mean, I, I have aspirations uh, as well uh, that we can, uh, that people will focus on the facts and be drawn to them, but people are concerned and they wonder, is there anything that Biden and other allies can do to make a meaningful impact regarding disinformation and the information warfare, would it make sense to create a government body or committee to tackle the issue? Because otherwise uh, it it does seem as though it's hard to move forward in a fact-free world that we're, we're operating in right now. So people have sometimes mentioned so-called truth and reconciliation commissions or something like that. I'm not personally in favor of anything like that. And I'm not saying that, there shouldn't be repercussions and, if appropriate, even prosecutions for people who engaged in unlawful behavior during the Trump administration uh, on, a, on a, an individual basis. But I, I, I'm very reluctant to have the, the government take on the role of being the arbiter of what's true and what, what isn't. I, I think that it's important, as I said, to have a, a robust marketplace of, of ideas out there and for ordinary people uh, to, to debate these issues. And we have a, we, social media, I'm, I'm a relatively newcomer, uh, relative newcomer to the social media myself. I, up until very recently, I only did LinkedIn, which of course is mainly a professional site. I, I've had a Twitter, the, the Twitter account that I use since February, 2012, but I absolutely never tweeted on it until I became active in the recent election starting just a couple of months ago. And I think up until now, I've mainly tweeted. I've maybe tweeted about 115 times, but I, I'm I'm very reluctant to have the, the government start to take on the role of, of the arbiter of the truth and the facts. I think that one of the one of the fantastic aspects of of our system and our constitution is that uh, we have the right of free speech under the First Amendment, and people really ought to use that. And I think at the end of the day, the American people get to the right place and do the right thing. And I had a number of, of friends who, some of whom might've served with me in the Trump administration and other friends who are on the, who are right of center politically, who thought that, and, and others who, who thought that maybe President Trump would be reelected in 2020, despite everything that's happened and everything he's done and said. And I just thought, I didn't think that would happen. I thought at the end of the day, the American people are going to do the right thing in this situation because, and they, and they did. And so that, that gives me tremendous hope. I I like hope. So I, I think that's a, that's a good point. I will just say that I do agree with you that I don't really want to see the government necessarily being, um, 
being uh, trying to make itself the arbiter of what's true or not. In fact, I, I often I think a healthy distrust of what the government is telling us is often uh, a good thing for citizens to have. I think we should. Uh, that's that's part of being an American is not just taking what the government says at face value. Um, that you know. That said, one thing I I do think I you know, and I wrote about this recently in Politico is you know, like you, I agree that people who broke the law should be taken into account for that. But I I, I suspect uh, this is me speaking now from my experience as a as a federal a former federal prosecutor that the 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 ability of our criminal justice system to tackle problems. Uh, is much more limited than people understand. In other words, there's lots of commentators who say this is unlawful, that's unlawful, this looks like this, this looks like that. But being able to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law is much more limited. It seems to me that for certain, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, policy, certain uh, things that that were that occurred during the Trump administration that that resulted in outrage. Or that drew that were that were the cause of rampant public debate and speculation. I think that having some sort of commission or some sort of non-criminal inquiry that puts forth a report to tell the American people what happened, I think that could be of value. Um, like we did in 9-11, for example, like what happened? Uh, just so you know, you get a report if you want to read the book. I bought it. You can read the book and. Uh, and know what what you know the nine eleven commission said about what happened. I think there's some value in that. What what do you think? I I agree completely with you, Renato. And in fact, I was part of the group in the transition planning office for DHS that stood up DHS back in late two thousand two and early two thousand three. And then I, after the department officially stood up on January twenty fourth two thousand three, I stayed on as an associate general counsel until I moved to the White House in the summer of 2004. But one of my roles, uh, which transcended my position as Associate General Counsel for Science and Technology, was I was the DHS's, I was the Department of Homeland Security's liaison to the 9-11 Commission for all purposes. The request for documents and testimony, for example, went through me. And so I had very significant interaction with the 9-11 Commission staff, including their general counsel, and worked with my boss at the time and, and my friend Tom Ridge with regard to his testimony to the 9-11 Commission in New York and actually went up to New York with him for that for that testimony. So I I and and then of course I read the the report. But I absolutely agree with you that in appropriate circumstances it would be a good thing to have bodies like that instituted in uh, under the Biden administration after January 20th. And one thing that comes to mind is I think we should absolutely consider having a 9-11 commission type body to look into the coronavirus pandemic and how, how it arose and the federal, state, and local government response to it. Uh, and, and not, not, for the purpose of recriminations, uh, so much as to uh, to look at what happened, why it happened, and to make uh, recommendations for best practices going forward in, in having in how to deal with uh, a pandemic such as the one we're experiencing now. And it's not as if there there wasn't 
a tremendous amount of work done on pandemics and planning for responding to pandemics, including in the White House prior to coronavirus. In fact, when I was in the White House, I was the associate counsel to the president with the Homeland Security portfolio, and I was embedded with the Homeland Security Council staff, uh, which uh, was headed up by Fran Townsend at the time. And the biodefense directorate, which was headed up by Rajiv Venkaya, when I was there, who's a physician, who's now in the private sector with a pharmaceutical company, they actually, at, at the direction of President George W. Bush, they actually put together a national strategy for pandemic influenza. Now, we're focused on influenza, but a pandemic is, is a pandemic. <laughs> and therefore, the planning that you do for, uh, for influenza can apply to other kinds of viruses. And so that was done in 2005, and then they followed up in 2006 with an implementation plan uh, for that national strategy. And of course, the Obama administration built upon that good work and did its own pandemic planning. And my understanding is that that was basically pushed aside and that the group within the National Security Council, because the Homeland Security Council had been folded into the National Security Council in the Obama administration, uh, that, that group was basically disbanded, unfortunately, at the beginning of the Trump administration. So unfortunately, there was that, that readiness that should have been in place to deal with the response to the coronavirus pandemic did not exist. And then, of course, the president's approach to it was, was horrifically bad, uh, and we ended up where we are. So I think it would be critical, and that's just an example. I'm not saying it's the exclusive one, but I think it would be a, it would be a really great step to propose uh, a, a commission on the coronavirus pandemic, and that doesn't necessarily have to be the name, but something like that to look into it to make sure that we're, we actually are prepared the next time and we have a much better, more robust, more effective response. Yeah, John, that, that is exactly the, the first example that came to my mind. And I'm sure there would be examples you and I might disagree on. And I've already uh, mentioned to our listeners that obviously you can't comment about, uh, D, you know, about your time at DHS. But from my perspective, you know, there's so much criticism of the department's policies regarding, for example, the separation of children uh, from their parents. Uh, that's the sort of thing that um, the public deserves to know what happened and why and what was what the truth of it was and what the end results were. Um, and, you know, what the policy is now uh, and from my perspective. Uh, and I think that's the only way in which that answer will get determined uh, because I, I don't um, I think any statement from a new administration would be political um, and uh, there it doesn't fit into any criminal statute that I see or, or something of that nature. Yeah. And, and I understand uh, your suggestion. And there are certainly other areas that would be appropriate for the new administration to look into, whether it rises to the level of of a legislatively authorized commission or not is I, I leave to others but but it is important and but at the same time I, I would say it, it's important for the new administration not to engage in retribution or revenge if if there are appropriate cases where prosecution should be pursued then then fine and if there if there are issues that that really need to be examined closely in order to look to learn what happened and how to prevent certain things, um, such as you mentioned, from happening again, uh, and 
then then I think that's totally appropriate. But but it's important for the pendulum not to swing to the other side. I, I agree. Yeah. In my in my recent column in Politico, essentially tried to make that point, which is, you know, obviously I'm concerned about the politicization of the Justice Department. And so any decision regarding Trump and his activity, for example, really, in my opinion, should be made by a special counsel with a mandate that's publicly known from the start and an attorney general publicly stating that she or he would um, abide by the recommendation of the special counsel. That's about as, the only way I think you could approach that question. And I, the reason I suggest these commissions is precisely because I don't think, you know, having the new DHS secretary say something or puts their own report out is just going to be seen potentially as, you know, the opposing view. And And I'd love to be able to get to a point where we look back at these four years that we've had in the Trump administration and figure out what we can learn learn from them as a country, because I do think it, they've revealed some things about our system and the way in which the system that I, I love and I imagine I, you love as well as an American um, is not it sometimes didn't have the the robust fail safes that we would have liked. Um, and I want to make sure that we have some of those guard. We have some more guardrails for the future. Yes, I, I agree with that. And this is slightly off topic, but I think one thing we've learned from the Trump administration, among many things, is that who we have in senior leadership positions in executive branch agency is even more critical than we might have thought before. And of course, we already understood that it was critical. Because if, if someone is not experienced and competent and careful and willing to be and able to be the adult in the room and to do the right thing uh, and is subjected to pressure uh, to, to do the wrong thing, a lot of damage can be done in a relatively short period of time. And the mechanisms in our system of government to redress situations are not instantaneous. They, they require going to the federal courts, uh, which is not uh, an, an instant process or going to Congress. And that's, <laughs> that's hit or miss. And so it is critically important to have the right people in those positions. As the founder of the Heritage Foundation is fond of saying, people are policy. And so it is absolutely critical to have competent, experienced, uh, rational, ethical people of integrity in senior leadership positions in all federal departments and agencies. And, and, to, have, and to have Senate confirmed officials who have been through that Senate confirmation process, which, which I went through, and it's a very, very thorough process. And, and they, they basically turn you inside out in that process. And of course, as you know, the FBI does a very thorough background investigation. And it's important to, to have uh, people who've gone through that process and for an administration or a president not to abuse the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, uh, which has happened at DHS and put a series of acting officials in every key position practically in the department and have them serve as acting officials or senior officials performing the functions of a particular job for months or even years on end. It's just not the way the system 
um, should work, not the way it's designed to work, and it divests the Senate of its proper advice and consent role under the Constitution, which is there for a reason. And, and, and one of the things that I think might happen in the new administration is some sort of effort to plug some of the holes in the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, and I would wholeheartedly support that. Yeah, so would I. I agree with you on that. Uh, that the abuse of the Trump administration of the uh, Vacancy Reform Act and essentially the abdication, I, I also place the blame of the Senate in abdicating its role, not pushing back. I think if if uh, if uh, Majority Leader McConnell had pushed back hard on that, uh, we would it would we would have had a different result. And so I'm I'm disappointed, and I think going forward we need to. We need reform. And it actually brings me to a, I think there's a listener question um, that is somewhat along those lines. Uh, Patty, do you uh, do you have that one? Well, and I think you've, you've kind of covered this, but I think this is very direct because one of our listeners, and I'm sure a lot of listeners, uh, you know, worry that had had Trump won, this would have been going toward an authoritarian state. Uh, you know, you, you've mentioned uh, about you know, you know, whether or not this something could be slowed, whether it's, you know, in the judicial system or in Congress. But, you know, so many Republicans have gone along, even if they were never Trumpers, what he was running or throughout the administration or have been quiet about it. Uh, enough have gone along. And as you mentioned, using his platform of over 88 million people following him and, and wanting to, to carry out sort of his vision, it seems, of government. People want to know how do we prevent this next time? And can we? It's a very good question. And my personal view is that Donald Trump was able to be elected president of the United States because of a confluence of unusual circumstances uh, without not not in any order of importance, but there was a rise of nationalist or popular fervor. Uh, the he was not an unknown, but he certainly had not served in government before. And there was some desire for change uh, after eight years of a Democratic administration and uh, some desire for change and some hope that because he's some sort of businessman that that he would bring some sort of new effective approach to government. Obviously, that didn't happen. Uh, frankly, the Democratic nominee was uh, rather unpopular in certain quarters. Uh, and I think that contrasts with Joe Biden, who really is, is more personally popular. So there were, and, and, and he didn't win an overwhelming victory. I mean, in the, in the electoral college, it was certainly, a, he had a decided margin, but he, he won certain battleground states very marginally. But I think it was, there was a confluence of circumstances that allowed that to happen. And as it turned out, it was a, it was a disaster in many ways. And, and that's not to say that that the Trump administration never did anything I agree with. I, I, they, they did. I mean, there, there are some things that, that were done somewhere in the government that, that I certainly agree with. But, uh, but overall, it's, it was a disaster, in my opinion, and, and something that shouldn't be repeated. How we, how we pre prevent that from happening in the future, I think it's critical. It's incumbent upon both major parties to uh, to be very uh, careful about who who gets nominated and not to nominate people because it's it's their turn or it's their time, but but because 
Uh, we think that this person will will lead, be a president for all Americans, as Joe Biden has pledged to, to be, and and will will do the right thing. And someone someone who has a moral compass, and character, and integrity, and someone who will appeal broadly, not just to the base, but to but frankly to people of the other party as well. And I I I think the data bears out in this recent election that the Republicans and independents who had voted for Donald Trump in 2016, but who flipped to Joe Biden in 2020, could well have been the margin of victory for Joe Biden, or at least it would have been a whole lot closer uh, if those people hadn't flipped. And I'm, I'm pleased to say I was one of them, and I, I hopefully I had some small voice in 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 that occurring, um, but. It's, uh, it's, it's also critical, I think, for future presidential candidates and political parties who are nominating candidates to see that you don't get a free pass just because, uh, just because people identify with your party. If things, are, if things are, are off the rails, there is a percentage of your supporters, people who are normally in your camp, who will come out and and do the right thing and reach across the aisle and maybe do something they've never done before. And, and I can tell you it's not easy. It's And having run for Congress and having had over approximately 22, 23,000 Democrats vote for me, and in many cases, people who had never voted for a Republican in their lives, and having spent a lot of time in a district that we knew was majority Democratic running as a Republican for Congress, I understand how difficult it is to persuade people to do something they've never done before politically, because political positions and and ideologies and and adherences are, uh, are are emotional to some extent, and they go to people's core identities, and it's it's very difficult to do what one has never done before, and and, and psychologically, I think people, and I'm I'm probably as guilty of this as anyone else, but people are. Uh, will come up with any reason to not, um, not not to do uh, not to vote for someone of the other party and to do what their norm what their normal predilection is, which is to vote for their own party's candidate. And it's difficult to free oneself from from that. And I, I fortunately did it this time, and a lot of other people did as well. Um, and I think it's important for the for both political parties to look at that and to understand going forward that you don't get a free pass, even with your base, that if you don't do the right thing, um, your your voters will. You know, I have to say, John, a lot of people on my side of the aisle were disappointed on election night, even though the candidate we supported for president won, because I think many people were hoping that there'd be a wholesale repudiation of Donald Trump. That there would be such I mean, this was look, this was a sizable victory by Joe Biden. But I think that they were hoping that the Democrats would win so resoundingly that the Republican Party would realize, oh, we really need to abandon this approach to governance. And the fact that so many other Republicans won um, and in fact, the Republicans, you know, gained seats in the House. It's it, the Democrats did worse in the Senate than many projected. It, it, I think it, it told 
Republicans that even if Donald Trump's not the right messenger, that Trumpism, whatever that is, is onto something. And I think that scares a lot of people on my side of the aisle. I'm curious what your take is on that. It makes me very uncomfortable as well, Renato. I, I, like you, I would have preferred more of a repudiation. And that's not borne out either in the Electoral College or the popular vote, although clearly Joe Biden prevailed in both and by sizable margins. But it doesn't rise to the level of a repudiation, as you say, and, and I, I wish that it had. Uh, I think it's going to be really interesting and critical to see what happens once Donald Trump leaves office. And I am confident that Joe Biden will take the oath of office on January 20th, how we get from here to there and how much damage Donald Trump does on the way out uh, remains to be seen. He's already done plenty so far, and I'm hoping that the damage will be minimized between now and January 20th. But it'll be very interesting to see once he is not in power anymore, how many, uh, what what the people who voted for him do. I, I refuse to believe that just because someone voted for Donald Trump, that they necessarily are uh, wholehearted adherence to what we might call Trumpism. And in fact, believe it or not, uh, and, and, and I, I try to get out of the, the Beltway mindset as much as I possibly can and, and talk to friends of mine and family members who, are, who live in other places just to see how, what they're thinking. And this is totally anecdotal, Renato, but I can tell you that I've had some conversations with friends of mine in other parts of the country since the election who are Republicans, who I know well, who supported me when I ran for office. And I didn't ask them point blank because I didn't think it was necessarily any of my business, but I probably voted for Donald Trump this time around. And when I, they didn't even, because I hadn't been in touch with them for a while, they, they didn't even know what I'd been doing in terms of endorsing Joe Biden, which I did in August and, and actively and vocally publicly supporting Joe Biden for president. They didn't know that I had been doing that. And when I, and they asked me about it just because they really were genuinely curious. And I explained to them why I did what I did. This was something they hadn't really heard. And it's, it, it might be amazing. And it was amazing to me and probably is amazing to you as someone who lives and breathes uh, politics and, and these sorts of issues, but not everybody out there knows what we know. And, and so I, I'm confident that, that even though Donald Trump got maybe a surprising number of votes, that, that a lot of those people, and I'm not going to try to put a number on it, but a lot of those people are really not Trumpists, if you will, or, or don't, don't subscribe to Trumpism uh, per se. They, they are Republicans who normally vote Republican, and they look at this as really a policy debate, going back to what we discussed at the beginning of, of, the, of the podcast, uh, and aren't really completely, they know he's kind of gruff and he says inappropriate things and he's sort of a bully, and, but they, they don't necessarily know how bad the situation is, and maybe more importantly, how bad it would become in a second term and, and the ramifications of a second term. So I do think that there's hope um, that 
people will settle back into um, into a, a more of a normal situation, and and maybe we have a good shot in 2022 and 2024 of having some normal elections that aren't dominated, at least on one side, by Trumpism. Well, I hope you're right, John. And you know, it, you know that is part of what gives me hope as well. Is speaking to so many people who are just who don't pay much attention to politics some of whom are uninformed, some of whom are misinformed, some of whom just don't have time to or don't want to take the time to learn more about what's going on. It's my hope that um, over time we can repair the damage that Trump has done to our country uh, and hopefully return to a politics that is less evil uh, than it has been uh, and, and less um, destructive than it has been over the last four years. Um well, I, I thank you so much for joining us, John. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, it's been great speaking with you, and I really hope that our listeners learn from your perspective, and, and I certainly have. So thank you very much. Thank you, Renato. It's been a pleasure being on with you and appreciate the invitation and, again, your willingness to to have uh, me on and get different perspectives. So thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 